a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. But how, how can you judge on video nasty? Oh, you've never seen one. I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film. My name's Christopher Brown. I left the Texas Chainsaw Massacre until last. Um, I did that because I thought it kind of sums up a lot of, of all of this stuff that we've been speaking about in season one and season two. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, directed by Toby Hooper, is not a video nasty. It isn't. It's not. It was never prosecuted was on the list of the 72. And yet, for some reason, everyone deeply believes it was. The reason for that is probably because of the impact of the film. So even though it was seized, and it is on this supposed seizure list, the Section 3, as, as it's been a nicknamed list of films, it didn't go much further than that. And you've got to ask why. Because Chainsaw Massacre, at the end of the day, is... Everything that the video nasties is about. It's, um, incredibly marketed film. You know, the, the audacity to call a movie that. It absolutely hot buttons everything that pissed people off to the point that when Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers was released afterwards, and we mentioned this way back when, they removed the word chainsaw from the title because chainsaw might be somehow corrupting of an influence. It, it's an exact, an, an execution of power against a film that, well, <laughs> Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers definitely doesn't deserve it, but, but, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it just, has in its in its intricate soul something that fucks people off. And the other thing is that it's hilarious. Loads of films that are in the list kind of looked at Ma- Chainsaw Massacre and went, shit, we can do that. <laughs> but can't. It just can't do it as well. So to finish off the Video Nasties podcast, one last film, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What happened was true. most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. is the movie that is just as real 
just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. So before we get into the um, the film itself and how it was made and the, the you know the the how how do you create and why do you create a film like this? I want to go straight away and talk about to you the censorship history of in the UK. So the film was uh, was aimed for a 1975 cinema release in, in, in Britain. And it was put in front of the British Board of Film Censors secretary, who kind of saw it informally, Stephen Murphy. He liked it, but he was like, this is like not good in terms of potentially releasing it. And his concerns were pointed towards the terrorisation near the end of the film, the last 30 minutes, which effectively involves a woman being increasingly uh, traumatised in an attempt to escape from a gang of cannibals, the cannibal family at the heart of the movie. The thought was potentially that it could be somehow released in a an edited format, some trims to some of the violence could be put in. When it finally came to it, it was viewed and the decision made by the director of the BBFC at the time, again, we've spoken about numerous times, James Furman, um, who kind of ran the, the institution for the best part of 15 years. Um, the decision was that even in that state, because of the, 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 the violence... Um, the je- how the film made you feel it could not be released in its current format in, in, in any format that it would just be too much so snip off it goes banned right now then the film was released in a pre-cut version this slightly edited version was released X by the GLC in, so it had the London cinema release and had limited releases also in Birmingham, Bath, Leeds, and Cardiff. That's because in the UK, for those that don't know, cinema distribution is actually legislated by the local authority as part of a licensing agreement. So um, the certificates are kind of taken on trust. But at the same time, if Liverpool suddenly decided to show, I don't know, Deep Throat as a U, <laughs> in a cinema feasibly they could do that I think maybe not Deep Throat but certainly I don't know Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it could offer a certificate so these pre-cuts were a little bit to a scene with a wheelchair and unsurprisingly um, the bit with the meat hook which is probably the most visceral shocking moments of the film so the film is this pre-cut version is then released on uh, VHS in 1979 by Ivor. So it was um, originally released on an eight, Super 8mm uh, film, which obviously wouldn't need a certificate at that point. Then it was released on VHS, 
in lots of different formats. Uh, and Wizard Video as well, which is Charles Band's thing, had the US distribution rights, and they released it in the so some copies in the UK. So the film was effectively a wash in the video shops of, of the of the country. You just couldn't see it in the cinema. And I think that's probably when you come down to the kernel of what the problem with VHS was at this time and why it rubbed people up the wrong way, it was that. The film had at its heart, um, you know, a, a kind of, you know, it was announced by Furman as being deeply troubling uh, and, and, you know, and a film that could corrupt and deprave and, and potentially cause damage. And it was fucking everywhere. And the film really, of course, notoriously isn't actually that bloody. Originally, Hooper had kind of wanted to get it like, you know, try and get this like, you know, really, you know, intense film released as, as low a certificate as possible. Even like, yeah, he's aiming for a PG. I think it's a little bit disingenuous when he said that, but, get it in low, goes to the MPAA in America and immediately says, absolutely no. So it, was, it goes in at rated X and then finally gets it down to an R rating as well. And this was the last X certificate granted by the MPAA prior to the introduction of the NC-17 certificate. Um, so, but it, it came out as, a, as an R in the end. Of course, when the Video Recordings Act gets released, gets uh, gets put out in 1985, it's clear that Chainsaw Massacre is not going to be able to be released in the UK anymore, and the film just gets pulled off the shelves. So, so the legislation is is incapable of allowing the film in any format to be seen at that point. So, te- in, in the UK. Not the US here. In the UK, this film was R-rated in America, uh, was banned a certificate for the cinema release, was flooded the market, fucking absolutely flooded the market in um, for about, about f- five years, and then gone. All the way up into the 1990s when there was a cinema release, which is when I've got to watch it, in 1999. And then various DVD, Blu-ray, all the way through now. I think there's, I believe there may be a 4K release as well. So the, even though it's shot on 16 mil. So all the way. And now it's, you know, it's a beautiful print and it's all beautiful and wonderful and we should all be very grateful. So a lot of people's experiences of this film originally will have been on VHS in the early 80s, which is a shame because the film is sold on its notoriety, but lasts in the memory due to how much of a bombardment it is. It's loud, it's visceral. It, you know, there are huge close-ups. You know, yeah, last week we spoke about Suspiria and, and how that film, um, uses its color palette and its, and its, and its soundtrack to disorientate and to frighten. This does the same thing, but in this film, it's hot. It's sweaty, it's ugly, it's dirty, and it's uh, it's deliberately designed to kind of, you know, get your heart pumping. It's to be a, a very visceral experience. 
So the film was uh, produced by Toby Hooper for $140,000. Very little. And because of that, he used the cast of relatively unknown actors. Shot on 16 mil, because as we've already discussed, it's cheap and easy and quick. Due to its title and um, how visceral it is, the film did struggle to kind of, you know, it it made money. But also it... um, wasn't probably as widely seen as you'd hope. And that, and that is because of the notoriety it created for itself. That all said, it was highly profitable, grossing $30 million at the domestic US box office. The film is influential. Still to this day, influential even on the films we have already discussed. The story is very simple. The gang, it's about a, a, a gang of you people who are traveling. They want to, um, and they've heard reports of vandalism and grave robbing of a, a family grave. On the way uh, to the old family homestead, they pick up a hitchhiker who is works in an old slaughterhouse who's clearly um, unwell, shall we say. Um, and they attacks them. When they all get settled... They find out that um, their neighbours uh, include this hitchhiker and a group of other people uh, who are family members, including uh, a person who wears a skin mask and carries a chainsaw and is incredibly keen on using both to uh, to attack them. And uh, our numbers whittle down with scenes of extreme and explicit violence. That's a simple story. Um, what is notable about it is after its initial pr- proto slasher setup, shall we say, the film and like the, the the very quick thinning of the herd of our cast of characters, the film narrows down incredibly quickly on uh, Marilyn Burns's character of Sally, who is um, and the reason why the BBFC's eye twitch repeatedly about this film for so long, despite the fact that I clearly. It did not deprave and corrupt anybody. The film was um, focused on Marilyn uh, being attacked and then trying to escape the clutches of this family. And it goes in very deep. It goes quite trippy and surreal. And um, it it hits a level of hysteria um, that is, when seen in films, does not normally last in such a sustained level for this long so the film is sort of based on the the crimes of Ed Gein um, the, but you know that's not it's very much its own thing as well you know I mean Gein inspired films from as varied as Psycho to Silence of the Lambs so let's not pretend that um you know, the, the, this is like a, although it says, you know, but, you know, the trailer you listen to, and it says, point out vigorously, this is based on a true story. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, and the, and the opening reels are kind of you know, trying to ground it in a reality. That, um, that, that reality it tries to grind it in is uh, very heavily influenced by, uh, by Hooper. Uh, and indeed kind of the, the, the times that they're in, you know, there's a feeling of distrust. So when we spoke around, um, Wes Craven's films that are on the list, Last House and Hills of Eyes. We spoke a lot around, you know, how those films were forged by the times. 
this is a definitely a time of distrust of the, the people in charge. So we've got the Watergate scandal, the 73 oil crisis, and um, Vietnam again. And so there is a, a brutality in, in the surrounding cultural landscape that certainly kind of permeates the movie. So the film was primarily shot in a farmhouse in Round Rock in Texas because of the small budget um, the, and the, the, the rental of the equipment obviously cost a lot. They basically filmed fast as they possibly could. So they went in seven days a week, 16 hours, go, 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 go. But, you know, close off the windows, we're at night <laughs> all the way. And it's Texas, so it's, and everyone's crowds into these little old farms house rooms and it's hot and uh you know it's not pretty as well you know rooms filled with chicken bones and, and faux blood and all that kind of thing um and as we've said already some of these bones go on to be felt used for the hills of eyes as well and the furniture was constructed from animal bones and latex so you can imagine and and without with the heat little ventilation and like animal blood to kind of you know from a local slaughterhouse to make it more feel more real. I mean, you could literally imagine effectively the home itself is decaying, let alone <laughs> what people are putting in it. The simplicity of and the budget constraints makes them incredibly um, willing to take chances and risks. Real hammers we used in some of the scenes. Um, William Vale, who played Kirk, was uh, terrified at points, particularly with his own death scene, when Gunnar Hansen basically says, you know, stay in place because we're going for it and kind of, you know, um, pushing the, uh, the the chainsaw quite, according to Val, uh, quite close, physically very close to him. Hooper um, notoriously kind of says that, you know, because of the way it was shot and the the risks they were taken, that um, he was the you know the the cast were, you know, kind of at the wit's end by the end. You know, obviously because the conditions it was filmed in to get it done in time, and I think that kind of gives a you know a, a general feeling into into the film as well. So it definitely feel you know it the tension and the stress and the heat and the dirtiness kind of permeates the film. Which was shot on 16 mil, which needs loads of light as well. So there, so you know, hot lights <laughs> to pick up the the grain, you know, uh, to pick up the image on the grain, which all kind of feeds in together. And then it took a long time for the filmmakers to recoup the money. They did a deal with uh, a company called Bryanston, and. Um, Let's put it this way. Bryanston Distributing Company uh, ended up going bust before anyone really got paid from the cast and crew. Uh, and it's only when New Line Cinema acquired the distribution rights further down the line that the profit share, and you know, in the early 80s, that the profit share actually kind of came to something. So all these videos that were flying around the UK in the early 80s Actually, <laughs> people who made the film got any fucking money from that, you know. It all kind of dis strangely disappeared um, 
from 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 Bryanston. The film kind of became a bit of a, a regular cash cow when it was being shown theatrically, uh, coming up year after year, uh, reissued into theatres uh, because it was continually popular. It's a mixture of marketing, its extreme title, uh, and its uh, and its notoriety in the you know it, it kind of combined to make it kind of sit within the. Um, the, the the fabric and the of 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 society, you know, it becomes part of the horror canon relatively quickly. Despite the fact that, you know, obviously banned in the UK effectively, um, and in countries such as Brazil, Chile, France, Ireland, obviously Norway, Sweden, West Germany. Over time, it would you know it would be banned for a period of time, and unsurprisingly, because something of that's so extreme, the um, in terms of it's how it's sold, and also how it feels that um, it got mixed reviews. So, um, including uh, the LA Times calling it despicable. Now. That's not everybody. There was also people kind of saying that it was, um, you know, saying that the film was very important. And it has a, a heavy cultural impact, regardless of all the all the um, the sequels, you know. Um, you think about, um, you know, obviously Hills of Eyes, which we've already spoken about, has definitely touched on that. A lot of the slasher films, Hillbilly Horror, anything with a power tool in definitely has at least a... A nod, a nod to this, as you know, the power tools, which so notorious as they are in UK cinema censorship history, does become you know embedded within the the, the storytelling moving forwards, and this idea of you know slasher films and unsurprisingly involve a lot of pen- penetration, shall we say, with their stabby implements, but it moves beyond a knife through to something far more brutal. You know, I think. You know, I've said that the reason why the film is so successful is, you know, it's marked and, and how it looks and, the, you know, the audacity of the sale. And I kind of agree with that to a point. But there are elements of it as well. I mean, certainly this carries these kind of fears, you know what I mean? Like you come off, you go off the beaten track and there's bad people ready to do bad things. And I think, you know, you think of like these, the films of Rob Zombie. Um, certainly the early stuff, House of Thousand Corpses and Dell's Rejects, both of which were heavily influenced by this film. Um, that, that's, that's a, that's a, a perennial fear that comes on, you know, when you think about, you know, loads of the films on this, Hills of Eyes, obviously, but, you know, Last House on the Left, which obviously is, the, is it came before, but, you know, that primal fear of you just take one, you know, you, you go one street too far and you are, fucking right in it very much and very significantly sits within those american cultural fears and those fears that you're on your own that no one's come to help you that you're isolated that's always a fear i suppose of a big country and one one with like you know a fear old expanse with there's there's very little but also um it, it plays on those fears um that everything's a bit corrupt and a bit broken and would breed and those kind of that kind of corruption and breaking it breeds 
terrible things. Um, I think that might be something that, again, continues to permeate modern psychological fears amongst the the culture of 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 the west of the west certainly certainly in america but also here in the uk as well that that we are by our divisiveness and our and the corruption and same parts of of society we are breeding evils that will rise up that are uncontrollable this is frequently spoken about in this film is spoken about about violence against women and the reason for that quite clearly is um, is this last 30 minutes also the the notoriousness of this meat hook murder that uh, which involved basically although it really was was having a a, a mount of it's like <laughs> some giant wedgie huge loads of strap and using um panty liners etc and then just being hoisted up onto the hook um, so like it, you know, as a as if she was being hooked on like a toy, I suppose. But I've seen the film hooked on very, very, re- you know, visually and really. Certainly, one of the most shocking moments in 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 the film, and one of the most shocking moments I think in in commercial contemporary American cinema. If we talk about the R rating kind of being that that threshold at that point, the film, despite all its attempts at bloody, bloodlessness is rooted in an obsession with violence against women and violence generally. It's also a film about meat, you know, the, the, the barbecue, the cannibalism, the violence, that, that all that is. It's, it, it roots itself within that as well. If we were being intellectual about it, we could turn around and kind of say that the film, because of its bloodless, it's, it's, it, it's selling itself as something very bloody and trying to draw you in, kind of saying, look at the woman on the meat hook, but doesn't really provide, you know, the payoff of the gore that you'd normally get, the release of that. Um, from a, a sensory point of view, that makes the film more tense because the brain thinks about that stuff. Also, that moment, so in a horror film, when the door closes, you cut to the next scene, you cut to the, the, the survivors going, oh, where, where's Trevor gone? Oh, I don't know where Trevor is. I hope he hasn't got into that house full of fucking cannibals, etc. With this, the store slams and we're still there. And that, that moment, I think your brain just goes, oh, this is different. We're going to see something more. And the tension just rockets right up and it gets very, very... Um, you're very in a very enclosed space and you're right there and it is all fucking happening all at the same time. And Chainsaw's very good at that. What I would say is, and I know that this film, like a lot of films about violence against women and films that we've spoken about, such as, you know, I Spit on Your Grave, um, have had a lot of academic writing around them um, because they're interesting films that discuss interesting and and, you know, important topics about culture and about, you know, how art reflects violence and, and societal issues. And that's really important. What it it doesn't do is really, though, the film itself, I would argue, isn't that invested in, in having those conversations. What it's invested in is making you feel something. And it's very good at making you feel something. And I think that is really where the film sits when we're talking about it. it. This kind of visceral 
experience where it's loud and it's bright and it's screaming and it and just everything is getting more strange and more vicious by the time grandpa rocks up like your your head's just like what is going on it's just so much and then there's still more <laughs> to come so yeah so the film I think is far more interested in making you feel that than having a discu- discussion about uh, society's uh, obsession with violence against women. In the same way, and you know, that is also true of I don't know Agatha Christie. <laughs> you know, it's meant to be an experience. It's not necessarily meant to be a you know a, co- a chat or a conversation. Anyway, the film was huge. Did really well, became part of this 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 um, fiber of uh, cinema, which led to sequels, Jurassic Time, Son Massacre Two, far more of a comedy. Uh, Hooper notoriously says that he kind of thinks thinks a lot of of this film is 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 funny. Um, I think we've mentioned that before, and I kind of get why you know there's there's an element of uh, the showman about that, but certainly by the second one he is absolutely playing up to the more cartoonish elements of the first film. Then there's the uh, Leatherface, the first one, which um, Hooper didn't return to direct. It's its own thing. Texas Chainsaw Massacre: Next Generation, which Incredibly features Rennie Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey in 95. And then various uh, prequels, sequels, remakes that come in, come in and uh, are continuing to come. I think Netflix has got something coming up soon as well. So um, the, the the terrifying story of a, of a, of a mentally disturbed uh, individual running around with a chainsaw is... Uh, is what is a hardy perennial in our cultural makeup now. Um, I'd also say finally as well uh, that none of them, fucking none of them, ever come even close to being as good as this film. So I think it's uh, a good way to close this off. It, the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, sits well within the themes of this podcast. You know, it, it helps. It's great. It also helps that it is... Um, so notorious and but it's almost all about its marketing um but you know at, at the same time um Furman and all that were just constantly like the, the the bbfc argument was it's cult it's actual fiber the fucking makeup of the film just is not suitable to be seen and i think those kind of arguments so excessive and and striking as they are kind of you know really kind of come to the to the heart of this especially because you couldn't go to the cinema to watch it, which, to be honest with you, is the best way to see it. But you could watch it in the in the comfort of your own home.
Thank you very much for the, for listening. If you want to get hold of me, please do. My email address is videonassispodcast at gmail.com. You can go to the websites, thelasthorrorpodcast.com or videonassispodcast.com. Leave any messages you may wish to leave on those sites. Um, this marks the last film we'll be covering. I'm just going to do a very quick intro, outro uh, next week to get that done. Um, just so it, it, people who, who get it don't just start with this episode, which is prone, prone to happen. Um, yeah. So, uh, very, so yeah, so then that, that, that's kind of been, marks the end of, of this journey, for, for, certainly from, from the film's point of views. And I hope you've enjoyed listening along and, and maybe certainly with the, this, this, this second season, find some films that, you know, you may not have had the opportunity to see, but, but may want, wish to seek out. Certainly these days, it's considerably easier to do that than it used to be. Anyway, until next week, where I finally wave off this podcast project. Take care, and I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye. I have never seen a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. But how, how can you judge on a video nasty? Oh, you've never seen one. I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film.